right. Welcome to the OverthinkingIt.com podcast bonus episode. We're going to have to call this 3A, I think, because I'm very concerned that the, you know, the numbers, that the data structures be apparent, you know, uh, to the, to even the casual listener. And I wouldn't be surprised if this becomes the most uh, listened episode of our podcast, because we're actually talking with someone who is interesting rather than just ourselves. Uh, but we have some of ourselves here, including Jordan Stokes. What's going on, man? Not too much. I'm uh, I'm excited to do this. This is going to be the the first interview episode of the podcast. Hopefully, it's, first of many. It's incredible. Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, Terminator Week is over, alas. Though uh, it was Jordan who started Terminator Week with a post about uh, Sarah Connor Chronicles, the TV show, and uh, a post uh, he did some writing about the music also, which we have on hold when we got this interview. So uh, we are pleased to welcome Bear McCreary, who is the composer of uh, all the music for every episode of Terminator Sarah Connor Chronicles. Bear, welcome to the podcast. Hey, thanks for having me on. Yeah, uh, wonderful to have you. Um, so, uh, Jordan, I'm going to turn it over to you and uh, and start the conversation. All right, great. So, uh, Bear, the first thing I want to ask you before we get down to to really digging into the music is: um, do you do you have anything that you know that you can tell us about whether the show has been picked up for next fall? If I had something to tell you, I would. Most certainly tell you. Uh, it's up in the air right now, but um, I personally feel pretty confident that it's going to come back. Um, um, the last thing I heard was that if it comes back, it'll come back uh, for the fall. So that's right. going to be a decision that gets made in the next couple of weeks. So it's not going to be a long time before we have an answer. All right. I just uh, I have a bunch of friends who are very excited to know, so I felt like I, I had to ask. Um, yeah. So, yeah, uh, you you have a blog of your own where you've written some very interesting things about this, uh, this soundtrack that you've been doing very ably for the series. And I wanted to start off by asking you to pick up a little on one of those things. You said that there is a sound world to the Terminator scores. Uh, be, quite beyond any of the melodies, but just sort of the instruments that are used, especially in the in the percussion sounds that you tried to recreate. And I was wondering if you could go into a little bit more more detail about the specific instruments that you you picked up from the movies that you brought over into the show. Sure. Um, well, first, uh, the scores to the first two Terminator films uh, are very. Uh, dear to my heart, and probably among some of the chief reasons I went into film music in the first place. Um, when I, the first little Casio keyboard that my parents got for me when I was a kid, and it had a little record function on it, the first thing I played in was Brad Fidel's Terminator theme. At least I thought it was Brad Fidel's Terminator theme. Um, but it was as close as I could, as close as I could get it, you know, whatever I was, eight or nine. Um, so when the show <clears throat> announced, um, the first thing that crossed my mind was, oh, no, they're going to make a Terminator show and the music's going to suck. That's going to make me so mad. Mm-hmm. Um, that, was, that was literally the first thing that crossed my mind. It didn't even occur to me that like I would ever get on the show. I just knew that whoever did the show would never do the music as good as I wanted it to be. Right, <laughs> and, right. Um, and you weren't even so, concerned about the quality of the rest of the show. You were just like, oh, man, the music is not going to be up to par. <laughs> well, you know, that, that, that's the funny thing is like um, – I, I was, of course, concerned, like all Terminator fans were, that the show would be bad. Uh, generally, making a leap from film uh, to TV series, um, you know, is not, is not always the greatest leap. You, you, most of the time, you get Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure instead of MASH, you know? Right, right. And um, so 
that's something that I, you know, I was worried about for sure. Um, so then, you know, fast forward about six months after I first heard about that, that would be last June. And I, um, I had a meeting with the producers who <clears throat> turned out were big Battlestar fans. Um, and, um, they asked me what I would do if I got the show. And I plainly stated that, uh, the Terminator movies had a sound already. They had a signature, um, recognizable style not that went far beyond the melody and the actual rhythms of the theme that had a what I called sort of a sonic palette or a sonic universe that it took place in that I would want to preserve um, this is the exact opposite approach that I take on Battlestar where my job is to erase all memories of the 1970s score. Not that there's anything against it. I, I think it was the strongest part of the original show. Um, but nonetheless, my music is guiding the new show in a totally different direction. And on Terminator, it's the exact opposite. I'm trying to remind people, hey, this comes from something else. This comes from Terminator 2. And even though Linda Hamilton's not there, Eddie Furlong's not there, Schwarzenegger's not there, um, it's the same universe, and the music is, is one of the chief ways that you can do this. And I think they were, the producers responded very positively to that. Um, obviously, if you've seen the show, you, you can tell that they, they uh, hold Terminator 2 and Terminator 1 as, as dearly as I do. Uh, no, so I think that's that they, very much true. You know, yeah, we, I think we found in, in, in each other sort of a, 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 a similar approach to how we'd want to do this. Uh, more than anything, I think the producers and, and the writers and myself – um, and, and everyone else on the show, but I can speak for them because I know them very well. Um, we felt very strongly that we just didn't want to mess it up. You know, we really wanted this um, to be true to these to these movies. So anyway, that's a that's a long setup for your 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 question. Um, the original scores were done. Um, were, were the first two scores were done entirely on synthesizer, with the exception of the first score that had an electric violin. Um, the second score, I think, might have had some sampled orchestral phrases, but certainly there wasn't anything in it that hadn't been um, manipulated electronically. And both of those scores, in my opinion, are um, among the most advanced synthesizer scores ever made. And that's a genre that continually changes. If you listen to a synth score in 1982 and one in 84, they already sound very different. But I always felt like Brad Fidel was on the cutting edge of... of uh, technology and, and with both of those scores, I think he redefined what is possible um, for a synthesizer score. Um, and, and he did that. Uh, he, um, I think there were a lot of sampled metallic percussion sounds, or what what sounded like sampled percussion sounds. Um, and uh, you know, so you fast forward to 2007. There, there's a lot more possibilities than there were in 1983 um, or 84. He um, he did the first score. I'm not even sure if there was a MIDI sequencer involved. I think he might have played everything in uh, wild. And, and of course, um, in 2007, the possibilities are endless. Anybody on any computer that you can buy at Circuit City can create something that sounds kind of cool, you know. But it also means that it, it's harder to come up with sounds that are that are still interesting and still fresh and still exciting. Um, in a way, I mean, it's harder to do a good synth score now than it was 20 years ago. Right, um, you're sort of paralyzed so, by choice in a way, you know. Absolutely, and you're, and you're also paralyzed by expectation. Now mm -hmm. there's a certain expectation that, uh, you know, synth scores either sound um, like Blade Runner, which was very a, a very definitive sound, or they sound kind of like 
Black Hawk Down meets The Rock meets Backdraft meets the whole Hans Zimmer school, which uses a right. lot of different loops and stuff. And of course, neither of those are ways that I wanted to go. Um, uh, so what we ended up doing, and is what I what I told the producers that first meeting that I would do if I got the job, is that we started recording metallic percussion sounds. And we started, we got um, an instrument called a whale drum, which is a, something I use on Battlestar sometimes for my percussionist. But it's a, it's basically a giant tuned oil can. And we bought another oil can that was totally beat up from a junkyard that rattled when you hit it. And we bought um, a whole bunch of aluminum bars. And then we got a bunch of hammers and mallets and sticks and just spent, a, you know, basically a couple of weeks recording uh, all these different sampled percussion hits. And then I spent the rest of the summer at the same time as I was working on uh, Eureka, I was editing samples and just looking for those few gems. When you record a thousand sounds, you might get 50 that turn out really good. Sure. Um, but we did, we did, and and ended up creating this library of metallic sounds and and by pitch shifting them and manipulating them, that um, that sounded the way that I that I felt like the Terminator sounds sounded. It doesn't mean that they sounded precisely the same, but they sort of resonated emotionally that same way. And um, and I was really excited whenever I stumbled across one of these sounds, and I would immediately just start playing all these rhythms on the keyboard, like, wow, listen to this. And it was almost like a key would write itself as soon as I got the right sound. Mm-hmm. Um, and then our approach beyond that with the percussion is after, after I created this library of metallic percussion, um, we would go with each episode. We go back to my percussionist studio and record the oil drum and the uh, whale drum and 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 all the aluminum bars and stuff. We record them again live, so that each cue has a layer of sampled percussion, on top of which there's a layer of real metallic percussion, which uh, gives it a, a, a it gives it a human element, so it doesn't sound completely synthesized. And then on top of that, um, I work with a guy named Jonathan Snipes, who's a uh, excellent musician in his own right. Um, he does a lot of electronica music, but he adds a yet another layer of loops and really weird distorted um, digital error sounds and, and a whole bunch of, uh, I mean, he basically adds this layer of chaos. And when you combine those three elements, is you get that's how you get the per- just the percussion part of my music for the show. So what it ends up being, it's a lot more, uh, it's a lot richer than uh, than some of the, the scores to the Terminator films, just because there's so many layers. But each of them has been inspired by those films. Right. I, I do think that it's you can really tell um, that the listening to the Terminator scores in isolation, not listening to the movie, there is something that's a little mechanical about them because they are entirely synth-based. Whereas, you know, when you uh, listen to the, the music for uh, the TV show, that, that human element that you labeled is, is something that, even if you don't know what you're hearing, you can hear that. Yeah. And the other thing that was missing from uh, the first two scores, because it was missing from the movies, uh, was a really warm, emotional, uh, dramatic, you know, human quality. And that's something that I knew immediately I would need to bring to the series, partly because the series is exploring different sides of Sarah Connor. Um, in In the movies, we see her in her completely innocent days, and then we see her as this hardened, badass, militant, Psychopath, I would be the word I would use almost. Yeah, a little I mean, crazy, right? <laughs> you know. So, but there, we didn't really see much of the transition in between, and also we didn't we didn't really see a lot of the warring factions of her personality. She wants to protect John as a mother, but she also wants to save humanity. 
And that's something that is a perfect thing to explore in a, in a well-written TV show, and I'm very happy to say that, that this show does that. But it also required a theme that was capable of expressing those different, um, those different emotions. And, and ultimately, even if we had the budget to use the Terminator theme song throughout the show, I'm not sure that I would have wanted to because I, I, it only captured one aspect of, of the movies to me. And uh, so I was able to write this new theme for Sarah, which has become the sort of de facto theme of the show. Uh, and that, for that, we brought in an electric string quartet. And this was, this was the, the other element that to me really defines my score against, um, against the movies is this very unusual orchestral element. Um, the electric string quartet is a group of four musicians, but we don't mic them in a room. We send them through guitar amps and uh, effects processors and mic the guitar amps as if they were guitars. But they still play together as if they were a classical ensemble. And the result is that it, it sounds like an orchestra. It sounds very rich and very deep and very full, but it also sounds oddly synthetic and, and kind of almost robotic and unusual. It doesn't sound... Um, saccharine and orchestral in the traditional sense. So in that, I was really pleased with how well that worked out. And, and they, you know, the, the electric quartet is a major component in in the score. So um, you're saying that the 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 original Brad Fiedel theme, there's a, a copyright issue that prevents you from using that. In not, its not, not, a, not even a copyright issue. It's just an ownership issue. Uh, okay. um, they uh, they did not. Uh, license. I mean, to, to use the theme song, one has to license it from from the publishers. And this is um, the Terminator universe is one of the ones that's the hardest to license, just because it the original film is kind of like an indie film almost. I mean, who owns the rights to what aspects of the of the film are very nebulous. And so the the, the company that owns the music is different than the company that owns the story, for example. Uh -huh. So interesting. So basically when you but this is this is true of, of, of a lot of shows. So like for example when they when they re, when they got the license to remake Bionic Woman, my understanding is that uh, they got licensed for to use very specific things. They use the name, the basic premise, and the title. But for example, there's that very um, iconic sound effect that they use in the old show that they did not license the right to use any of this sort of uh, sonic aspects of that show. So when they came time to do the new show, that you can use the name, you can use the title, you can use the story, but you can't use that sound because that wasn't part of the deal. Anyway, long long answer for a short question. Um, they did not, um, could not afford to use more than literally five seconds of just the, that dun 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 dun. Exactly. Card, right? So yeah. you get that over over the title card, and. Um, and originally, like I like I said before, I was kind of upset by this. I mean, I thought it's not Terminator unless you're hearing that uh, theme. And um, but in the long run, I I think that it was a it might have been a blessing in disguise because the theme that I wrote, I feel, captures more sides of Sarah Connor personally. Whereas if you think about the original Terminator theme song, the, the melodic part of the theme doesn't necessarily associate with Sarah Connor. I mean, when you, when you close your eyes and listen to that theme song, you tend to conjure up images of Arnold. Um, mm -hmm. and, and, it, and it doesn't really necessarily tie to her arc and her story. So right. in a way, I, I was able to create a piece of music that is more malleable and, and more adaptable to all the situations and story arcs that Sarah Connor particularly is being associated with. So I think it really did kind of free us up, not, not to mention the fact that let me write an original theme. 
Sure. I mean, it would be very hard for any composer to say, you know, I'll, at the end of the day, I'm unhappy to be writing this music. Uh, but the, the Sarakana yeah. theme is a, it's a great theme. Um, are the, it, it sounds to my ear that there are a couple of little sonic references to the, uh, to the old Terminator theme in it, um, especially well, in, in the way that it ends with a, that, uh, that three-note descent. Sure. I mean, it's, it's one of those things where you, if you're watching a, uh, I, I was, I did a lot of experiments with the theme. I mean, the, the theme was the hardest part of the show to come up with, and I realized that any melody set in the minor mode, if you're watching a Terminator thing, you're gonna be like, ah, that kind of reminds me of Terminator. <laughs> you know, like it, 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 it was really funny. I mean, I, um, it, it was sort of, it's it, because that Terminator theme is so ingrained in all of us. That was sort of a, a an automatic connection that it that it sounds like the sort of twisted evil sibling of uh of the original theme because of certain and, and yeah the, the last three descending uh notes at the end of the figure the part of the my theme that really stands out is what i call the, the b section of the theme which is right. where these, these two oscillating major chords come in and it there's nothing in any of the terminator scores um the first two films that uh that has that kind of harmonic progression um I don't. I can't even think of. Maybe maybe Sarah's theme in the first movie might have had two major chords in it, but that was a kind of harmony that that uh, Fidel mostly avoided. So it automatically sounds. Um, it sounds different. It stands out. And, and of course, this is. I'm I'm too, I'm describing the reaction of people that that really know those first two films. I, I I'm not sure if that's something that would dawn on, on someone who hadn't seen the first two films, but. Um, they're not really the audience that, that I'm thinking about when I'm putting these kind of details in. Sure, yeah. I mean, you know, you always uh, always write for the, the person who knows the most and hope that hope that other people are, you know, picking up some of it. Um, Absolutely. Yeah, yeah the, the, uh, the B section almost has kind of a spaghetti Western sound to me. Oh, like, totally, you know, yeah, totally. It has a very that, more Kone quality. Yeah, but it fits in very well with the mythology of the Terminator movies, so like that idea of mm-hmm. the you know the the stranger coming into town and all. But something that I had never thought of before. So it was uh, you know a real a real eye opener for me. Uh, when you're writing themes, um, all of the ones that you have uh, cataloged on your on your website, which by the way, I mm-hmm. I wish that every film composer would do something like that. It was such a such an interesting read. Uh, they seem yeah. to be kind of based on characters that you have a, a specific mm-hmm. melody associated with a specific person, um, or perhaps a group of persons. You kind of have one theme for all of the the evil terminators, right? Is yeah. that something that uh, informs your approach to writing uh, for for movies and TV in general, or was it for this show particularly? Um, probably, probably in general, it, it's hard to say, um, when, when you're doing features, it's a little different. I tend on feature films to score, um, to score arcs instead of particular characters. Um, there was a film I did called, uh, Wrong Turn 2, and believe it or not, these are the sort of, um, musical, uh, you know, dilemmas I, I break apart even on a, a hillbilly cannibal zombie movie. Um, but there was a character in it they were supplanting in the beginning to be the, the heroine lead. And I wrote this theme for her and about halfway through, they pull the rug out from under you and she dies. And it turns out this other character becomes the, the lead character. And so that, that theme that I had started for that, for the, for the, the fault, the false heroine became the, the theme for the other one. So it's not like I had two different themes for those two characters. I had a theme for the general arc of who's the person that starts off, 
um, as being scared and, and afraid, and then at the end of the film is ultimately the the heroine. Um, but but um, TV is a different animal. TV, uh, you you got to survive the long run. Um, Battlestar was an incredible learning experience for me, um, having done. Uh, well, as of, as of now, about 60 hours of Battlestar, and by the time I'm done, it'll be 75. Um, and it's an endurance test. And um, so having thematic themes for characters makes it a little easier to get by because you also don't know what's coming down the line. There, there were times in Battlestar I wrote a theme for a character, uh, and I got really fond of it, and then two episodes later the character died and oh. wouldn't ever come back. You know, I didn't know that. Um, and then, but then there's other times where I wrote a theme for a relationship or a character that, you know, in season two or season three down the line becomes a major story arc. Um, and um, so it's a way for me to cover my bases, you know, and if each character has, an, has their own theme, then I'm never going to be stuck without, uh, without a melody to work with. Um, one of the interesting things about Terminator is that there are about five principal characters, but there's only four themes for them. The, the the character who doesn't have a theme is is Cameron, who's the uh, mm-hmm. the Arnold Schwarzenegger of this show. And sure. one of the reasons that she doesn't is that if you just look at her her scenes in particular, they're always reacting to Sarah or they're reacting to John. And in each of those scenes, I always felt like um, we as the audience don't quite know what's happening with Cameron. We're not quite sure where she's coming from. And each every scene that she was in uh, was was from the perspective of Sarah mistrusting her or the perspective of John, who's obviously falling in love with her, but even on a, on a more immediate level, John wants to trust her. John wants to believe her. So I ended up not, not needing an actual identifiable theme for Cameron. And I'm, I'm sure this is something that will eventually come up. It was just sort of interesting that one of the main characters ended up seamless but it works very well because like you say i mean she's she's a mystery and the fact that she doesn't have her own music uh you know uh very much something this is you know not news to you but uh when you're watching a movie the music tells you things about the characters that you couldn't otherwise know so you know no information about her is coming in through our ears or our eyes or anything um so, so following up on something that you just said uh what point along in the sort of production structure of the show do you come in and, and write the uh, the music? Is it by the episode, by the like the chunk of two or three episodes, or? Well, it's usually as soon as uh, on on any show that I work on, the the absolute earliest cut of the episode that makes sense is the one that I like to watch first. Um, uh, when basically all the scenes are in order and maybe after the director's cut and the producers are still going to go through it and the network's still going to go through it. But I never wait until it's locked because there's just no time. Um, Usually it's locked the day before it dubs. Um, So uh, I don't read scripts, though. And uh, the main reason I don't read scripts is, um, well, as a fan of the shows that I'm working on, it, it takes some of the fun out of it. Um, but also, the show can change in, in radical ways during production and especially in post-production. So I don't like to get ideas when I read a script and, and visualize what I think I'm going to do and then walk into an episode with that preconceived notion that may or may not fit anymore. Um, so generally, I, I, look at the, I look at the first workable cut, and then, and then uh, maybe one more pass later after the producers have looked at it is when, is when we... 
uh, is when we start scoring. And there will always inevitably be more changes. Um, in the case of Battlestar, there will be massive changes sometimes. Um, but like I said, I start earlier just so that I get um, the amount of time I need to write, and then we go through editorially and conform the music, edit it, tweak it to, uh, to whatever picture changes we went through. Now, do you have a kind of creative relationship with the directors the same way that you might on a film? Or, are, I mean, are, when you're going through to, to spot it, to decide when you're going to have the music, generally, are you doing that just on your own? Or? Uh, no, generally that's with the, with the producers. Typically okay. in television, the, the directors, by the time you spot with a composer, the director has already left. The director comes in, does his cut, and then leaves. Um, the only exception to that I have found has been in Battlestar, where I have done so many episodes with a, with a couple of directors, um, particularly Michael Reimer and Michael Nankin on Battlestar, who between the two of those guys have done almost all of the key essential um, episodes. Um, I've got a pretty good relationship with them, and in, and with the, in the case of those guys, um, they'll oftentimes call me or I'll get in touch with them before an episode, and, and we'll discuss ideas. And sometimes I'll, I'll send them a, um, you know, I'll send them some demos, and, and, and I'll make sure that they're involved. But that's that's uh, pretty exceptional. Um, most of the time, the directors are um, are not involved. I mean, partly because if you think about it, the the, the director is coming in and doing one-thirteenth or one-twentieth of what is essentially one big movie. It's the producer's job uh, to oversee them all and make sure that they all, um, they all make sense together. Right. Uh, they're the ones responsible for episode to episode to episode. So it's, it's probably a much better system this way. That way you don't, you don't end up with somebody coming in with some really radical idea that, that doesn't you know, stick out and, and make, the sh- make the episode too, too unusual. Although that does happen on Battlestar sometimes, and it leads to some of the more interesting uh, musical uh, moments. Uh, speaking of that in particular, there's a, a track from Battlestar on your website called Black Market, which is a, a very mm. different, it's a, it's a really righteous heavy metal track, just a, yeah. a different sound. Um, who's playing on that? I mean, is, are these studio uh, musicians or? These are, that's the, um, the core rhythm section of that track is the uh, rhythm section from the famous cult band Oingo Boingo, who really? did uh, Dead Man's Dead Man's Party and Weird Science in the '80s, and they they uh, they had a really long career. Um, but yeah, they play on all my stuff. In fact, the guitarist from uh, Boingo plays all the guitars you ever hear on Battlestar, and the bass player plays all the bass parts. So I work with those guys on on all my projects. Um, so it's funny that you ask. Um, but uh, that was an interesting track because um, that was something that I just did for fun. There was a, there was a place where, uh, in, in an episode where Lee Adama was going to walk into this bar that was supposed to be part of the seedy underworld. And I said, hey, you know, these guys, these guys are dangerous mobster guys. They're not going to – they're going to have music playing, you know. They're not going to be just sitting there in silence. And uh, and I thought, well, you know, if it was Star Wars, this would be the Cantina Band song. So what would it be in Battlestar? And um, so I wrote this just really heavy, heavy prog rock 7-4 kind of um, Rage Against the Machine piece that still had all these sort of Middle Eastern inflections that my score had. It was the first time I experimented with having my score be the sound of the source music in battles in, in in that universe, meaning which which what I was trying to say is that rather than being an element that's forced onto the show, that 
the, that the inspiration for the score kind of came from the music that those characters actually listened to. Now, that's a really, really, really subtle point to be made across in, like, the 30 seconds that Lee walks across this room and you barely hear the music. Um, but the funny thing is that it led to um, the inclusion of All Along the Watchtower in Season 3. Because what happened is that Ron Moore came to me and said, hey, we want to use All on the Watchtower. And I said, well, what do you want it to sound like? And he goes, I don't know, make it sound like Battlestar. And suddenly I had already laid the groundwork. I had already set a precedent for what pop music sounds like in their universe. And so I thought, well, okay, we'll try this out. And I pitched them my idea, and it was basically the exact same arrangement. It was a, like a heavy metal rock setting with a lot of orchestral and Middle Eastern influences. I mean, basically, it's a pop song that sounds like it came from my score, and everybody loved it, and it, and, and, uh, and it really has set the precedent even in, into season four, that whenever they're listening to certain pop music, it has the sound of the score, which, of course, makes the score sound more tied to that universe. Yeah, I mean, it's a, like you say, it's a subtle point, but if you're really cued into film music, it's a crucial one, like whether, whether this is something that the characters... You know, do, do they know what this yeah. sounds like or, or not? Um, you are preaching to the choir. I mean, yeah. <laughs> one of the things that has just annoyed the hell out of me for years is when there's a piece of source music that is not idiomatic with the setting. When you're watching, um, oh, this is the first example because I just watched it again the other night, but, you know, you're watching Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, and you get to that Brian Adams song at the end, it doesn't sound like the rest of the score, even even though Michael Kamen did did orchestration for it and, and the melody had, had been played through the whole film. It's still even as a kid, I was like, Whoa, that doesn't sound like Robin Hood. That sounds like now you know? Yeah. And uh, and of course, you know, you, you can very easily lose count of the number of times that a that a pop song has been forced onto a film. Um and and I admit I was very very concerned about that when I first got the call about doing Watchtower. I thought initially that this was going to ruin the show, um, but I did have I wasn't sure of how much creative freedom I was going to be given on it. And ultimately, I think I was able to make it sound like Battlestar, even though lyrically and melodically it's such an iconic song. Um, I was given enough freedom to to be able to to make it fit the show. And uh, it's now gone down. I mean, I'm not, I haven't really watched all that much Battlestar, but I know enough to know that the uh, appearance of that song is certainly not ruined the show. It's one of sort of the great iconic moments in, in the, uh, the overall arc. So, you know, it yeah. certainly worked out. Um, so let's talk, while we have you for a couple more minutes, about how you got into writing film scores in the first place. I understand you had a sort of apprenticeship with Elmer Bernstein? Yes, I um, worked with him for almost uh almost ten years actually um, I met him when I was in high school um, but getting into film music is um, sort of the only thing I think I could have ever ended up doing um, ever since I was a kid that's that's been my passion and uh, I've always you know I always collected soundtracks when I was a kid and I would go to see movies and and with my friends when I was in grade school even and I'd be walking out and I'd be talking about the French horn line that Jerry Goldsmith wrote over this one action scene and everyone all my friends would look at me like, What the hell are you talking about? <laughs> um, so it was sort of, you know, uh I don't want to say destiny, but it was sort of inevitable that, that that would be where I decided to end up going. Um but I went I um I got into USC's uh, music school, and uh, my real training there, um, in addition to working with, with Elmer in the summers um, and sitting in on his classes uh, every year, but my real training was doing student films, and I did, a, I did about 30 um, 
student films there. And my, my most eye-opening experience came, um, I had the opportunity to sit in and watch Elmer conducting um, Wild Wild West uh, with Barry Sonnenfeld there. And I also had the opportunity to watch Danny Elfman conduct, um, or Danny Elfman scoring uh, Red Dragon. And he was in the booth with uh, Brett Ratner. And so I was just kind of a fly on the wall in these two scenarios. But I remember realizing that the, these directors, these A-list directors, were saying the same goofy questions to these composers that the 18-year-olds I was working with were saying to me. <laughs> and that's when I realized that, you know, doing these student films, that, that so much, even though the budgets change and the length of the film changes and the, the financial stakes change, that so much of the creative process is the same thing, whether you're doing a, a five-minute film for a first-time filmmaker or you're doing an A-list um, thriller starring Anthony Hopkins. And that's when I really realized um, that I was getting useful experience. Are there any directors out there that, uh, based on based on either the way that they use music in their films, or just based on the movies they make, that are sort of you know dream people that you'd like to work with someday? Oh boy. Um, well, yeah. I mean, I I, I always um, I always wanted to work with Sam Raimi. I, I was uh, um, a big fan of his work since Evil Dead. Uh, which is why I, I remember thinking, you know, that guy's going to be, this guy's going to be one of the biggest filmmakers in the world one day. And, and you know, then it was like 15 years later, there it was. Um, but I, there, there are, uh, there's a lot of directors that, that are interested in using music in interesting ways. And one of the things that I, that I think is cool about having done Battlestar is that it certainly showcases that I can, that I can be involved in a project where, where the music is doing more than it typically does in a TV show. So it certainly has opened doors to, uh, for me to, to filmmakers and producers that are interested in doing unusual things. A, a perfect example is obviously Terminator. Um, this was a show that I didn't have to demo for. I didn't have to have my agent clamor after them for. Um, they approached me about it, and, and it, was, it was really remarkable. But they were fans of Battlestar, and they, they saw what I was doing there, and they, they wanted – they wanted someone with that kind of approach to 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 bring their show, um, you know, that much closer to the movies and, and that much closer to being something, you know, being something really special. And uh, so, you know, I, I'm very grateful that that uh, that I've had that exposure through Battlestar, as opposed to a lot of television music where the signification is really straightforward and kind of. I mean, kind of dumb, actually. You know, like oh, it's the, a it's... lot of television music. Maybe even the vast majority of it. Um, it, it's there. There are more and more shows coming up that are uh, that are uh, creatively interesting. I mean, I really think it's sort of a renaissance in TV. And ten years ago, um, you would never have imagined that television would have as much um, talent flocking to it. No, especially, you know, we're living in a post-Sopranos era where it's oh, you yeah. know, people are interested in complex characters. People are interested in story arcs that go over. <laughs> you know, several episodes or several several seasons yeah. even. And, it, you know, the music for these kinds of things doesn't have to be, oh, it's the bass clarinet of regret, you know? Oh, <laughs> yes, exactly. It's, <laughs> you know, I mean, it's the, uh, you know, piano arpeggio of indecision. Sorry, Jordan, I didn't yes. mean to... Didn't mean to <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 I'm, I'm, 
I'm glad you brought up the bass clarinet of regret, actually. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely, right? And, like, you know, slowly push in, you know, slowly push in on the girl as she stares out the blinds, you know, the light slashing yeah. across her face with, you know, the, the lone tear trickling down. Sorry, I didn't mean to jump in on your interview, yeah, Jordan. No, I no, just, it's, I just it's, funny, could... it's funny you'd mention that because one of the things that, um, that I just avoid with a passion is uh, sampled piano because, to me, that's huh. one of the things that, it sounds the closest to the real thing, obviously, but because it's so overused, it, it just makes me want to retch whenever I hear it, you know? And, yeah, uh, I, have a, and, I mean, and, I have an art in my, in my basement. I have like an, a Roland RD700, and I think that that piano sample is pretty damn good, but I wouldn't want to record anything with it. Like... Yeah, and it also, it also, um, it's also sort of a crutch where you, you can figure out uh, some musical progression or a harmonic progression. They go, oh, that's kind of cool. And you just play it on the, on the piano, and then you're done, moving on to the next cue. And right. that's something that, um, to me, bypasses one of the most interesting parts of music, which is which is the orchestration and, and which colors do you use. And But, but also just as a matter of um, it's something that's been heard a billion times. So um, even on Battlestar, I had to do this solo piano um, thing uh for for season three and and i remember it was it was so tempting just to like oh, all right we'll just do a sampled piano and knock it out of the park but i was like no we can't do this so i i refused to like break my own standards so we went to warner brothers and, and recorded it on their grand piano in their giant room um just so just so that even if it was a piano i it was, i still wanted it to sound live and sound really good like it's a, like it's an actual instrument as opposed to a you know a deterministic algorithm uh, you know, yeah. making the music, which is, you know, after all, supposed to convey something artistically. Yeah, and those are the kind of differences that that I think make make the difference in the end. I mean, you're trying at the end of the day, you're trying to cr convey emotion, and I think that um, anything you can do to help bring that sound to life is gonna is gonna Im impact the audience's experience as they watch the show. All right. Well, uh, I think that we're, we've taken up about all the time that we can, uh, in good conscience, take from you. I have one more question uh, before you go. Sure. Just, I noticed in your in your concert works, you have a, a twelve tone piece listed. Is there is there any chance we're going to be hearing some tone rows on the Sarah Connor Chronicles in the future? Let me think. I think I use. I know I used a couple. Um, there was one in the the episode Vic's chip when they're um, when they are uh, removing Cameron's chip. There's there's an interesting mm -hmm. row that 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 whole that whole piece is built out of a, a row that's stated in the beginning, and then uh, I develop it in the middle, and then for the end of the scene I state the row in retrograde at the end. Huh. This is one of those things that sounds really intellectual, but the fact of the matter is I didn't know what to do with the scene, and it was a long scene, you know. <laughs> so I was like, oh great, I can come up with a row, and then then it's like, oh great, I just need a retrograde, you know, map some stuff out. Perfect, and it, and it has that un, unsettling uh, quality. One of the one of the things I learned from Elmer is that he said when he said whenever you're stuck, just write a fugue. And I asked him, thinking, yeah, you know, just write a fugue. If you don't know what to do, it'll be fine. And and I swear to God, I've done that like twenty times. Where I'm sitting in a scene, and I'm like, ah, oh, what do I do? I'm like, all right, screw it. I'll just write a fugue. And I just start a subject and take a second line coming in. I go go to the fifth, and then I development section, and then bring it back, and and then it's like. Yeah, that cue's done. That that's all it took was a, a little feud, you know. Um, but uh, yeah, you know, it's it's actually funny that Sarah Connor, because it has strings, has um, has been like uh, 
a, a liberating experience for me because Battlestar, I'm extremely harmonically limited. Um, I, I remember I'd been doing a show for three years before I wrote a um, a, uh, a minor chord with an, with an added six. And suddenly, my, my the guys that were playing the, the piece suddenly stopped, and they were like, "This is what is this? This piece sounds so different than everything else." What? what, what, what I don't understand. And I was like, "I was like, you guys found it. You found I'm slipping this chord in just to see if anyone notices." Um, but I'm Sarah Connor. I, I, it's like the weights have been taken off, and suddenly I can do whatever I want. And so yeah, there's a lot of there are some twelve tone rows. There's some like pitch clusters and pitch sets that I use. If you listen to the season finale, there's this total. Um, Ravel-inspired moment at the end um, when Ellison is standing off against um, uh, the Garrett Dillahunt character. I don't know whether to call him Cromartie or George Laszlo or Kester. It's very confusing. But anyway, the bad guy, Terminator guy that just killed a bunch of dudes. Um, anyway, but that and that was a that was a scene that you know I had. Um, well, in all honesty, I, I had uh, had my appendix out in an emergency surgery two days before I wrote that. So I think I was on Vicodin when I wrote that cue. Um, but it was something that I got to explore with, and, and, it, and it, uh, it's one way that I get to help certain scenes stand out that I can't do on Battlestar because I, I need to keep a much more homogenous um, sonic palette, and on, and on Sarah Connor I can explore. And you also have the string ensemble, which it makes it so easy to explore um, harmonic writing. Well, we hope it gets – I mean, we're all waiting, hoping it gets picked up for the fall again. I, you were kind of hampered by the writer's strike this, uh, you know, this year. Right. Yeah, well, that's the, the funny thing is that the, the episode that was billed as the big season finale wasn't written as a season finale, right. nor was it shot that way. It just happened to become the season finale. Was it, you know? Had they ordered 13 apps and, the, and they ended up with, what, nine just because of the story? Nine, yes. Oh, wow. So there were four more, there were four more episodes that – And there was, um, were there scripts, at, I mean, in some draft stage at some point? I, I, I'm sure that they were at some stage. I know that they had been mapped out. For they'd been sure. broken. Okay, so, so they, they'd broken the stories, and so there was this whole. Yeah. There were other arcs to to finish and things like that. Huh? That's Absolutely. interesting. I mean, you know. Yeah. And then uh, finally, I'm sorry. Final, final question. We all answered this on the podcast uh, during our Terminator Week episode, which you know you can check out. Though I, I'm sure you've had enough of all things Terminator. Uh, if a Terminator were after you, Bear. Uh, what would you do, and what would be your strategy for trying to survive? The Terminator were after me. Um, I think I'd shave my goatee and cut my hair, and then he'd never find me. I don't <laughs> think my girlfriend would recognize me. <laughs> Excellent. Well, we will leave it there. Thank you so much for your time, man. Thank you. You bet. Thanks so much. It's interesting what he said about fugues there at the end. Uh, there's a quote from Brahms, actually, who somebody asked him about his inspiration, and he said, when I can't compose, I write counterpoint. Anyway. <laughs> I, had, I don't know. Yeah, well, because they can go on theoretically forever, right? Yeah. yeah one, of my, right. one of my, my college roommate, uh, you know, was in music 310 at Yale or something like that, and they're, they're writing a fugue, and he's like, I don't know when it's finished. Like, in a sonata, there's, there are certain things that have to be accomplished when it's done, and in a fugue, there, you, you can develop it in so many ways, it's theoretically unlimited. 
Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, there's no close to the form. It just goes on until the composer decides it's time to, it's, time it, to stop. Right, it's like, uh, right, wasn't that, wasn't it Charlie Parker who, who said to, no, 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 it was Coltrane who said to Miles Davis, dude, I don't know when to, I'm sure he didn't say dude in my <laughs> surfer, California surfer accent. He said, uh, but man, I don't know how to stop my solos. And Miles said, well, take the horn out of your fucking mouth. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, anyway, thank you so much for listening to the overthinkingit.com podcast. I'm Jordan Stokes. I'm Matt Rather. Dun, 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 dun. dun, dun. dun, dun.